In the summer of 2008, I was a student uh, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, which is just north of Boston, about a 40-minute drive or so in in the uh, Beverly-Hamilton area. And that summer, I had an opportunity to do what, what was called an overseas missions practicum. And so for 10 weeks in the summer, students like me could get school credit by going among the nations, serving with a ministry or a church partner or a church planter who works cross-culturally. And so what, what I did was I was able to travel with another friend from school uh, to the Philippines and live for 10 weeks with a Filipino church planter. His name was Pastor Robert, and he welcomed me very hospitably into his home to eat his food, to, to stay in one of his you know, small, small rooms. Uh, Laura came for the first two weeks and then had to, to head back for work. But it was an amazing, formative time in my life where I learned about God's global mission, what he's doing cross-culturally among the people groups of the world. And so what we would do is we would, we would do the work of church planting, being out in the neighborhoods, sharing the gospel, meeting up with neighbors, so very s- similar things to what we did to, to get Beacon started eight years ago. And so uh, seven years before this church started, I had a chance to go and learn from a Filipino church planter in a cross-cultural setting. It was, it was an amazing experience. On Sundays, we would gather in his small apartment, and we would have a worship gathering. And these are people and churches that have very few resources, and so you make do with what you have, and they would gather in his living room, some 25, 30 people packed like sardines, shoulder to shoulder, and we would sing the praises of God, some in the local language in the Philippines is Tagalog, some in English for my benefit, but many, there are many English speakers there as well. And I remember one Sunday morning during the worship gathering, we began to sing a song entitled Minimahal Kita. And I want to just translate, share the lyrics and then translate them for you. Here's how this song goes. Minimahal Kita, which means I love you. Sinasamba Kita, I worship you. Sa'aking buhay in my life. I ikaw ang nagbigay kalahugan, you give meaning, minimahal sinasamba kita, I love you and I worship you. Very simple song, very beautiful melody. I love you, Lord, I worship you, Lord, in my life you give meaning, therefore I love you and I worship you. Now, the song wasn't translated for me, so as we were singing, on the one hand, I had no idea what was going on, but on the other hand, I knew everything that was going on, because it was heartfelt praise of the living God who saved these people and gave them meaning. So, though I didn't know the language, I knew the language of worship, which is universal, heartfelt worship to the living God. And for me, it was a a picture of a greater worship gathering that all of history, all of Christian history is headed towards, and we see this grand and greater worship gathering in the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Revelation 7, 9, and 10, 
The Apostle John writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, this is the destination toward which we are headed. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your destiny is a worship gathering, a glorious worship gathering where people who do not look like you will be there singing the praises of God. So though we all will be different, we will all be unified in heartfelt praise to the saving God. That's where history is headed. And on that day, in that Sunday morning worship gathering in the Philippines, it was just a sneak preview, because I was among people that were very different than me, singing lang- songs and languages that I didn't know, but I knew everything, what was going on. It was heartfelt praise to God. That is where history is headed, and it will be a beautiful day, a privilege to be a part of. Friends, it's that global worship gathering that I want to draw your attention to this morning. So let's turn together in our Bibles to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. In the Bibles we've provided on your seat, you can find this passage, Revelation 7, on page 1032. Page 1032, Revelation chapter 7. Uh, if you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one in our lobby. Uh, there's a, several bookshelves. The one closest to the restrooms, you'll see hardback black Bibles. Please take one, grab a couple if you have a friend who needs one as well. Revelation chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. The Apostle John, the author, writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This morning we continue, as, as Beth, uh, the worship leader this morning, mentioned a two-week mini-series on congregational worship. How do we think well about musical worship in the life of our local church. As we gather on Sunday mornings, how do we think rightly, faithfully about music and worship? It's a very important matter. As many of us can attest to, music is near and dear to most of our hearts. Now, we have sort of degrees of musical giftedness and preferences and styles, but we we gravitate towards music. It is a mnemonic device. It's a teaching tool for children and adults very near and dear to our hearts, at times a source of division, of discontent, of challenge, particularly in local churches. It's an opportunity 
to exercise the, the mind of Christ of being sacrificial towards the preferences of others. But it is, can be a, a challenge, a very important topic to think well about. So that's why the two-week series. We want to provide some handlebars to hold on and to think about in congregational worship. So last week, we studied a combination of Psalm 100 in the Old Testament and Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 in the New Testament. And last week, I provided a definition of worship, and then I provided two goals that also serve as guardrails for congregational worship. So by way of review, so perhaps you weren't able to, to attend last week, just a brief review. Last week, as we unpacked Psalm 100 in Colossians chapter 3, we gave this definition of worship. Worship is our faithful response to God's revelation, to the revelation of God's character in the Bible and throughout creation. He's revealed himself, and the revelation of God's work expressed through the Bible in his saving purpose through Jesus Christ. So God has revealed himself and we respond. We mentioned God is the initiator. He is the first one to move. We're secondary. We respond to God's character revealed and his work revealed. So worship is our faithful response to God's revelation. Musical worship is just a little piece of the pie of the overall whole life calling of worship. Worship is an all-encompassing word. Worship is living your life, all of what you do, your work, your family, your neighborhood, your relationships, your speech, your thoughts. Worship is living your life, the entirety of your life, in a Godward direction. Living your life in view of who God is and what he's done. Musical worship is a slice of that. It's unfortunate that we, we, we kind of speak of worship just in a sort of a musical term. Worship is all-encompassing. It's your whole life, living your life in a Godward direction, in a God trajectory. For our purposes, though, in this series, we're talking about worship, congregational worship, Sunday gathered worship among your local church. So we're, we're, we're dealing with a slice of the overall bigger picture of worship. Now, goal guardrail number one that we unpacked last week of congregational worship, Sunday morning worship, was this. Our goal, one of our goals and one of our guardrails, is congregational participation. We unpack Psalm 100. There are seven commands in that. Make a joyful noise, command number one. Come into God's presence with singing, command number two. And on down the line, those commands were given in the plural, you plural, like you all, or y'all make a joyful noise to the Lord, y'all come into his presence with singing. It's not a singular application. It's a collective application. You all. So God, through his people gathered, calls us to worship as a people. And therefore, the greatest instrument on Sunday mornings is the voices of God's people. It's important that we can have some, some accompaniment and some, some instruments, but the most important instrument on a Sunday morning is all of our voices together congregational participation. So that informs the songs that we choose. Are they singable? Not all songs are created equal, right? Some songs are better performed and listened to. Other songs are better sung collectively. So we want to sing songs that are collectively accessible, singable. 
We want to think about arrangement and tempo and key. Again, these are areas that I know not of, but my friends up here do. I defer to them. I trust in them. But how do they arrange songs that are accessible, singable to the congregation? It involves how we think about volume. What's the right volume that our friends here who serve so faithfully on Sunday mornings, enough so that you can hear the band here playing, leading you, but not so loud that you can't hear yourselves sing. Because if the primary instrument on Sunday mornings is the voices of God's people, then we got to hear each other. Congregational participation. It involves lighting as well. We want all the lights to be on as best we can. I know that you're limited to your space in this case, but we want to be able to see each other singing, hear each other singing. Because goal number two is that songs teach. And if songs teach, then we need to make sure we're singing songs with sound doctrine, right? Songs teach. And so in the gathered worship, you hear people singing the praises, telling the truths about God and about his work. We need to hear and see one another do that. There's sort of cross-pollinating cross of God's people as you're singing to one another the truths of God. It's reinforcing, it's, it's creating uh, fruit in each other's lives. We've got to hear each other singing songs with sound doctrine. So the two goals and guardrails are congregational participation and sing songs with sound doctrine. So that informs what, what songs we, we choose, teaching the truth about God and his saving work in Christ. This morning we come to part two of our very brief series on congregational worship. I want to investigate three questions with you this morning. Who, why, and how long? The who of congregational worship, in other words, who's involved. The why of congregation, why? What, why for what purpose do we gather? And then three, how long? How long will we gather for worship? Our text in Revelation 7 deals with all of these. Three questions, who, why, and how long? First, the who of congregational worship. Who will be involved? Let's look again at Revelation 7. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. We'll take a look at the content of their song first. But first, who is gathering to sing praise to the saving God? Who is represented here? It's so beautiful. It's glorious. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue, all the people groups, all the family groups are singing praise to God and to the Lamb. Here we see the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, God draws near to Abraham, makes a promise to him that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth all the people groups of the earth shall be blessed. Well, how is that going to happen? The greatest blessing of the Bible is salvation. So what God is saying, there will be some from all the people groups across the globe who will be saved, who will be represented on that final day. How is it through Abraham? Because through Abraham is a, is a lineage, a seed, the seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. It's a lineage that culminates in Christ. And all who trust 
in the focal point of Abraham's lineage, Jesus Christ will be recipients of that salvation blessing. So through Abraham, all the people groups of the earth will be blessed as they trust in the culminating one in that lineage, Jesus Christ. So we see that here in Revelation 7. It's the fulfillment. All the people groups, people from every tribe, nation, tongue who trust in Jesus are assembled on that day, singing praises to God and to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Notice their garments. They're clothed in white robes, a symbol of purity. These are sinners who've been washed clean from their defilement by the blood of Jesus Christ. White, pure, cleansed, washed in the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Don't miss this. Friends, Jesus Christ cleanses sinners. He takes our defilement, messy, shameful as it is, and he cleanses us, purifies us. That's the power of Jesus Christ. How are you in need of cleansing this morning? As you think about, you survey your life, what are you ashamed about? What is the sin that you keep routinely committing, that rut that you're in? Jesus Christ has power to lift you up out of the rut to cleanse you. Look to him. Keep looking to him because as you do, the end destination is perfect purity in white garments singing praises to the one who saved you. Jesus Christ has power to cleanse filthy sinners. How do you need cleansing today? Notice what the redeemed sinners have in their hands. They're waving palm branches. This is a little bit lost on us, but if you've grown up in kind of church culture, you may remember Palm Sunday, getting a palm branch as you leave or enter the church. Why do we do that? Well, it's not just to kind of jam that in the ear of your brother or sister to kind of tickle them. It's a cultural symbol of homage and reverence to a king. So, in ancient Near Eastern history, as a king would come, they would throw leafy branches, palm branches down for him to walk and ride upon as he's entering back into his kingdom, very much like we say, hey, roll out the red carpet. It's a symbol of homage and reverence. The king is coming. A dignitary is coming, and so you throw down leaf branches. And so when Jesus comes in the week before his, his death, he comes riding on a, a colt, the foal of a donkey, and they throw down branches before him, and they sing out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means please save. That's a, a Messiah cry. But they put down these leafy branches. They're paying homage to the king. So as those redeemed sinners are waving palm branches, they are saying, you're the king worthy of all of my homage, all of my reverence. You're worthy of all of my worship because you are the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one who has power to save. He's the king. We see the nations gathered here in Revelation 7. You see the beauty of the nations, but also as we think about our fallen world and fallen churches, not only do we see the beauty of the nations, 
but the tragedy of division among people groups in Christian circles. The tragedy of fight, infighting and conflict and prejudice and hatred that has existed. Friends, we're headed to a worship gathering with people who don't look like you. And it's, what's beautiful, just looking across this congregation, we see all kinds of different people here gathered together for the express purpose of worshiping the Lord. It's a beautiful thing, not something to divide over. It's something to rejoice in. Because collectively, all the people groups in the world, their backgrounds, their differences, what they look like, it all reflects the image of God. All of it is a collective reflection of the beautiful image of God. God's kingdom is a many-colored kingdom, and it is beautiful and glorious, and it is where we will be. If you're a believer in Christ, you will be among people who don't look like you, and it will be wonderful and glorious forever and ever. God's kingdom is a many-colored kingdom, beautiful and a privilege to be day after day singing praises to Christ the King. Notice it's not just the nations, not just people groups who gather. Who else in Revelation 7 is represented? The four living creatures. A little bit mysterious here, but we're first introduced to them in Revelation chapter 4. The four living creatures, different animals represented there, but it's symbolic, representative of the created order. God's creatures are gathered as well with God's people. And then the 24 elders, also from Revelation chapter 4. That 24 number likely speaks to the continuity and the comprehensiveness of God's people. How many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. How many apostles were there in the New Testament? Twelve. And so the 24 is likely 12 in the Old Testament era, era, 12 in the Old Testament era, plus 12 in the New Testament era, the collective body of the saints of God, the collective body, 24 elders representing God's people, past, present, and future. And then you have angels. Angels are represented, falling on their faces. The heavenly realm is included in this worship gathering. What's the point? Friends, on that day, representatives from the created order, the heavens and the earth, people, creatures, and the heavenly beings are falling on their face before the Lord. He's worthy of it all. His whole creation is worshiping him on that day. That's the point. So the who of congregational worship, number one, the who of congregational worship is people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, living creatures in God's created order, and the angelic hosts. God's creation is worshiping him. That's the who of congregational worship. Second, the why of congregational worship. Why will we gather and for what purpose will we gather? Well, we find the why of our worship when we consider the content of our worship song here in Revelation 7. Notice the song. What do they sing? <clears throat> in quotes, they sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on our throne and to the Lamb. Why will we gather? For what purpose will we gather to worship and praise? Because we have been saved from sin and death, because we've received salvation. That's why we will gather. That's why we will rejoice. That's why we will sing. Brothers and sisters, do you know what the sound of someone being rescued is? 
The sound of someone being rescued is rejoicing. In 2002, just outside my hometown, there was a terrible mining accident. July of 2002, the Q Creek mining accident. Nine miners stuck 240 feet below the earth's crust. They hit this water reserve. It flooded out the mine shaft. They dug an auxiliary one. Took three or four days. They dug down 240 feet in a little tube, a little tube, 24 inches, and they slid these, these guys back out. And do you know the sound when all nine came out? Do you know the sound of a man being rescued sounds like? It sounds like hallelujahs and rejoicing and hand clapping. That's the sound in the front page of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, my hometown paper, all nine alive. The sound of a person being rescued and saved is the sound of rejoicing. That's what's happening here on the final day. What's the sound? What's the song? It's salvation. It's rejoicing. It's jubilation. That's the sound of a person being saved is rejoicing. There is no other sound. Our song on that final day will be salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Our saving God is alone worthy of this song because he alone saves. There is salvation in no one else. Peter and John preached this sermon in Acts chapter 4. We covered this a year ago. They, they preached this sermon in Acts chapter 4. They say this, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, there's no other name. Not Allah, not Buddha, not your own personal pursuit of, of spiritualism. There's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved but Jesus Christ alone. I know in a culture like ours that seems very narrow-minded. It, it seems exclusive, but let me encourage you. Yes, it is exclusive in that there's only one way of salvation, but it's inclusive in that it's available to anybody who will trust him. There is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ, but it's available for all who will trust in Jesus Christ. So yes, it's exclusive in one sense, but it's wonderfully inclusive in another. Salvation in no other name. Friend, maybe you come here today and you don't know Jesus. You are staring down a Christless eternity in a real place of conscious torment called hell. It pains my heart as a pastor to say it, but it's the reality of the word of God and I'm no pastor or preacher worth his salt if I don't share it. That's what we face, a Christless eternity separated from God and anything good forever and ever in a real place of conscious torment. But it doesn't have to be that way because there is a Savior who came and bore your punishment on the cross, all of it. He was buried in a tomb and he rose again on the third day. And if you will trust in him, you will be saved. There is salvation in no one else. Don't eat what the culture's cooking. They're going to tell you all kinds of other things. Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone saves. Keep your eyes on him. He's the author and the finisher of your salvation. He's the alpha and the omega. 
the endpoints of the Greek alphabet, alpha and omega of your salvation, the A to Z of your salvation, salvation no one else. And because of that, he's worthy of our salvation song. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. First, the who of our con congregational worship, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, the created order, the heavenly realms, all will be worshiping. Second, the why of our congregational worship. Why? Because we've been saved from sin and death by the only Savior that can do that. Thirdly and finally, how long will the worship gathering be? You might be asking that. How long is this going to be today, Dane? Well, I hope this is an encouragement to you. That worship gathering is going to last forever and ever. Verses 11 and 12. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying amen and amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. How long will this worship gathering last? forever and ever, and it will be so satisfying to your soul. I know in our fallen minds, in our fallen place, here and now, this side of heaven, that seems like, oh, that's an awful long time. Oh, but it is going to satisfy your soul, and every worship gathering of every day is going to be better than the next one. It will satisfy the deepest longing of your soul, because that's how we were wired, is for worship. And it's polluted in this life, because of our sinfulness and our selfishness. But in that life, it will be utterly glorious and satisfying. C.S. Lewis, in his final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, writes this. And Aslan, as he spoke, no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can mostly, most truly say that all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at least, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The destination that all Christians are headed to is that. And every day is going to be better than the next day. That is eternity with Christ the King, singing praises to him with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, the created order, and the heavenly host, every day worshiping Jesus in eternity will eclipse in joyful experience the one before. That's where we're headed. Praise God and come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness to us, for your word, for the ability to read it, to understand it, and to hear it preached. God, help us to worship you with all that we have, every ounce. But we know in this life, we are hindered in our worship because of sin, but we long for the day that you will come and we will be before you singing your praises. You're worthy of all of our voices. Help us to sing now in view of that day and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.